Welcome to the Renovate Podcast. I'm Brandon Anderson. I'm Stephanie Schell. And today in the studio, we have Kristen Jensen with us. She is the author of Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, Porn Proofing Today's Young Kids. So Kristen, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I was privileged to grow up on both sides of the continent. I have lived in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and Boston, Massachusetts, and the Midwest, Indiana. Wow. I've lived on Long Island. I've lived in Virginia. I've lived in California. I lived in Utah. And most recently in Washington State, in the Seattle area, and about three and a half years ago, we moved here to the Tri-Cities. I have a degree in English literature, and a master's degree in organizational communications, which is just a fancy pants term for training and development. I homeschooled my kids for a couple of years, so I guess that means I'm a teacher. Definitely. And <laughs> I, um, let's see, I'm active in my church. Uh, I think the most important thing I am is a wife and a mother, really. And, um, those have been most my most important roles, I think, in life. About three and a half years ago, I moved with my husband to the Tri-Cities, and I found a cause to take up, and that is um, the cause of helping parents inoculate their kids against uh, the damaging effects of Internet pornography. So, as you said, I wrote a book called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, to, and um, I've been keeping very busy <laughs> mm. with, that, with that book and with that cause. And I also blog at pornproofkids.com. So tell us a little bit about uh, how you got started writing this book. Well, just a few months after I moved here, I met a woman and she gave me a call one night and she really needed someone to talk to. And she began to tell me a very tragic tale. She had a large family and she just found out that her oldest son, who was 17 at the time, had been sexually molesting several of his younger siblings. And not only that, he was also addicted to pornography. So we talked late into the night and I woke up the next morning and I just felt this question in my head throbbing in my brain saying, you know, who will help protect the young children? Who will warn them? So, as I've never had an original idea in my entire life, I thought there must be a book. So I got online and I started looking for a book that you could read to kids and just explain to them what pornography is, why it's dangerous, how it can affect your brain, and what you can do to protect yourself, you know, just like the books on stranger dangers and things like that. But mm -hmm. I couldn't find any book, couldn't find anything. And so I just felt compelled to begin researching and writing a book that parents would feel really comfortable reading to their kids. It is an uncomfortable subject, but kids need to be warned. They need to be inoculated at a younger age because we have so many mobile devices and kids have so much access now to the internet. Oh, I know. Wow. 
So I think this is definitely going to be an incredible interview. And I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, your answers to a lot of these questions that we're going to have as we dive deeper into this. But first, let's start with kind of a, an icebreaker question. If you could go to dinner with one person in history, what would you talk about and where would you go to eat? That is an interesting question. <laughs> okay, well, let me think. Okay, well, several years ago, I wrote a historical novel about my great-grandmother. Well, that's really neat. Actually, it's about my grandmother, but I wrote. I learned about my great-grandmother and my great-great-grandmother. Mm. And have you ever heard of National Novel Writing Month? Mm. It's called <laughs> NaNoWriMo. Oh, yes, I have. Yeah. I've thought about doing yes, it. Yes, you should. <laughs> it's, it happens in the month of November because there are 30 days in November, and so you can write a novel in 30 days. And it was started by a man mm. who didn't have to worry about Thanksgiving dinner. That's... Because our Christmas shopping. But anyway, one year I did this, and it was one of the most satisfying, fun, exciting things I've ever done. So I researched my grandmother's life. She grew up, she was born in Star Valley, Wyoming, which is western Wyoming, just south of Jackson Hole. And she lived... She was born in 1901, and she lived during the period of time where there was that pandemic flu, 1918 pandemic flu that went around the world three times and killed, some say, 200 million people. Mm-hmm. Everybody was getting sick. It was also World War I. I mean, there's just so many amazing things happening. Well, her mother had actually been a pioneer in Star Valley. Now, Star Valley is a high mountain valley, and even the Native Americans wouldn't stay there during the winter. But these hardy pioneers came in with their covered wagons, and they they survived the first winter. And we're talking 40 below, blizzards, horrible. They survived that first winter there and went on to build, um, most of them got into the dairy business. Okay. So anyway, I wrote this book on on them, and I think I would love to go back in time, if I could, and talk to them and mm. just learn more about what it was like to be a pioneer and how hard it must have been and how they, how they survived and built up a community from, like, nothing. Mm-hmm. And what would I eat? Well, <laughs> I think I would love to try their homemade bread. Ooh, with maybe some fresh churn butter or something, <laughs> yeah. or, you know, something uh-huh. like that. So that's uh, that's that's what I was thinking about as far as uh, just going back and talking to my own people. Mm-hmm. All right, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. So let's go. Um, so that's a question about the past. Let's go into a question of the future. The use of technology has some problems, such as you know superficial relationships, too much information, self-absorption. What are some practical suggestions to counteract these problems in our society? Well, you know, I've actually written about this on my blog. With, t- with so much access to technology and the amazing things that technology can do for us, it can kind of take over our lives. So 
we have to live intentionally. We have to be very intentional about technology. And um, I think what you need to do is actually just take a moment and think about how you can use technology to better your life. In other words, how it can work for you instead of you being kind of enslaved. Enslaved. <laughs> Good word, thank you. Enslaved by it. So I encourage people and families to develop their own tech etiquette. Oh. Tech etiquette is, you know, how you're going to control your technology so that it doesn't damage your relationships and mm -hmm. your own aspirations. Mm -hmm. So for example, you could answer some of these questions. When will you disengage from your technology, from your phone or your iPad? You know, if you're sitting down with a meal, mm -hmm. are you going to have your phone there and keep checking it and even talk to people or text people or whatever? Or are you going to try to just be with the people that you're with physically? Um, another question you could, you know, have, I'm sure we've all had this experience where you're talking with someone and they get a phone call. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, oh, that phone call is more important. Even if you're like spilling your guts, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. all of a sudden they get a phone call and they're off talking. It's like, okay, okay, yeah. I guess I'm really important. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that to keep it from damaging your relationships, you have to kind of come up with your own set of rules about how you can deal with those situations because you've got a virtual world, you've got a physical world, and um, you need to figure out the boundaries. Um, I had a one time I went shopping with a friend we decided oh, we're gonna go shopping together and get together and everything and yeah. she spent half the time on her phone talking with other people mm -hmm. so how did that make me feel it's like okay are you gonna be with me or not are didn't gonna... really want to hang out yeah just... do you really want to hang out with me or do you... so I think that it can damage relationships if, uh, if you're not intentional about that so I like the maxim maximum be where you are mm, so I like that too. if you're intentionally spending time with family or friend be there don't don't let a phone call you know or your phone allow you to only be like 50% of a friend you want to be 100% of a friend and I keep in touch with my friends on Facebook and social media I think it's great mm -hmm. but like you said you can't be enslaved by it. you have to tame it that's that's really good. Yeah. So on a on a connected question, how can we use technology to evangelize? How, so, you know, how can we use it as as a tool to spread our message, for instance, to to promote, you know, what we're trying to do, to evangelize and change the world. Well, it is changing the world. It is. I think you have to educate yourself about the technology. I've certainly had to do that. So I've gone to classes and I read up on blogs on how to use various kinds of social media. I go to classes, like I said. Um, I think it's really important to show people, um, as far as just using technology, how it can help them solve their problems. Um, and how they, people can use technology to um, to get their message out. That I'm 
basically using social media to get my message out about porn proof kids and and my book good pictures bad pictures and it's been great and the more I learn the better I can do it so I guess it just comes down to education and talking with people and figuring out how to use this new tool this is not that new but the new tools that come along uh-huh. uh, every day Okay. <laughs> Sorry, which one? That one. Okay. As a Christian living in the world, but not being of the world, how do you define personal success? Well, I would say that, in my own mind, success is to never stop learning, never stop growing, um, never stop um, trying to make the world a better place. And personally, I like to think of success as making God happy. Oh. He's our Father, and He loves us and is really interested in every detail of our lives. So, mm -hmm. if I can make Him happy, if I can help Him a little bit, I think I've been successful. But the biggest success I think I've ever had is just finding a wonderful man to get married to <laughs> and staying married. Mm. So that's probably, <laughs> do you regard that as your greatest personal achievement? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, we're, we're working on uh, year number 30 here. Oh, so, wow. uh, yes, being married and having a good marriage, I think, is probably my biggest success. So tell us a little bit about some of your tips to stay happily married. There, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of single people that listen to this podcast, and there's a few people that are married that we know of. It's, our audience is primarily single. Mm -hmm. So talk, so you can talk from either side of the coin. You know, what's some advice you would give to someone that's single, or you know, what's some advice you would give to someone that's, that is married? Okay, well, I'll tell you the advice that I gave to my daughters. Okay, all right. First of all, I said, have a test. Have some tests because make sure you are looking at this person through your, well, the book we talk about the thinking brain and the feeling brain. So make sure you filter them through the thinking brain. Before, so it sounds like those are separate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, before you get emotionally involved. And if you see a red flag, See, because once you're in love with somebody, it's like, oh, you can rationalize all those red flags away, right? Oh, I can help them. I can save them. I can, you know, you won't. After yeah. we get married, that'll go away. Yeah. It's like, no, it won't. So the other thing was to have a test. So when I was dating, I had this test. I would invite the guy I was dating over for dinner. And I'd make this big dinner for him. Mm -hmm. And then I'd see what would happen after I was done, after we were done eating. Would he get up and help me clean up, do the dishes, oh. okay? If he didn't, <laughs> uh, I knew he was never going to be helping to change diapers, okay? Mm -hmm. And I wanted a family, and so it was like... That's smart. That, that's <laughs> it. That's it. Forget, forget you. Great, now so, everyone knows the right answer. Great. 
So I guess that really pertains to being a selfless person and generosity and being willing to help another person mm -hmm. because in the end, you know, beauty can go by the wayside. Um, a person be can become disabled or disfigured. Mm -hmm. uh, so many things can happen. But if you have someone that is willing to be there for you, um, and when times get tough, they have the stamina to stick it out, that's the kind of person you want to be, and that's the kind of person that you want to marry. Now, having said that, marriage will make you a better person. It's a great training camp for just being a better person because you have to like plan things with this person, <laughs> goals that you want to try to achieve with mm. this person, and they have different ideas, and they may have different ways of going about it. And some things they do that you didn't notice when you were dating, like really annoy you. And so there's all these ways to help you become a better, you know, nicer, more uh, Christian person, I guess, mm -hmm. is marriage. It's, it's great. Um, and I'll just throw in, when we had our second child, he had a near drowning accident. There was a bucket in our backyard, a large tub that had gained, just had filled up with just a few inches of water, and he fell into it. And kids are top heavy because they're just their heads are a lot heavier, mm -hmm. bigger in proportion to their body. And he fell in, and he was 18 months old, and he couldn't breathe. And when we finally found him, I just ran in the house for a bit, and anyway, we found him, got him to the hospital, um, doing CPR and they finally were able to resuscitate him, but he had a lot of brain damage. So now we have a child that requires 24 hours of care. I have a, I'm pregnant with my third. Things go wrong with that pregnancy. I mean, it was crazy, crazy, crazy year. And then for the next 10 years, we took care of our son. He's in a wheelchair, he was tube fed, he had to have a suction machine, all kinds of medical issues, oh. and my husband hung in there, and we were both exhausted, exhausted. But, you know, we had two other kids, and he had to keep working, and we, I mean, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But, so really, that's the kind of person you want. Someone that's like in it for the long haul, no matter what happens to you or him, that you're both kind of committed. And this is one, my last thing I'll say, commitment is more important than love. Love goes up and down, okay? There have been times of like, oh, do I really love my husband? Or <laughs> I'm just gratefully there to help me with my kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, I'm bored, you know? This isn't as exciting as it was when we were dating or first married. But commitment, if you can be committed that I think is the that will get you through the ups and the downs of of you know the romance that Be comes and goes because love is not just a feeling it's a choice it's a decision mm -hmm. to love that person right. unconditionally so exactly exactly yeah. and it's a choice to be it's a choice to love someone it's a choice to be committed to them this is what real love is I'm not talking about yeah. infatuation or right. any of those other things exactly so. exactly Tell us about a time that you overcame a big obstacle. 
Okay, well, obstacle is an interesting word because when you think of an obstacle, it's in your way. You have to go around it or go over it. But I like to think of the adversities that happen in our lives as challenges that you have to go through. So I talked earlier about my son and that was definitely a challenge we had to go through. And there are many challenges, but I think they're not obstacles. They're just ways that you can find answers and grow and develop and find more opportunities. So one of the obstacles I faced was after I started writing the book, Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, I had to make a decision about how I was gonna get this published. This isn't exactly a book that has ever been done before. So I started, I actually sent um, the manuscript off to a traditional publisher, got rejected. Of course, you have to have that experience as an author. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I started to find out more about traditional publishing as it is right now. And then I started looking into self-publishing. And I found out with traditional publishers, especially with like illustrated children's books, it takes three years for them and more. Oh my. <laughs> for them to get it onto the shelves and get it available. So I didn't want to wait that long. I just feel so passionate about this message of prevention that I decided to um, go with self-publishing. And I went to several, I went to conferences and I learned again, educating myself about this. And so I was able to get it self-published. And now the challenge is, is to get it out there and to get it out into the hands of parents so that they can help their kids. And any author that I've ever talked to, writing the book may be difficult, but getting it out there and, um, and helping people to know it's available and what it's all about, that's, even a, lo that's a lot more work. The publicity side. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. So, but I'm enjoying it all. So, getting this thing published and getting it out there, it took three years. And this was, this was just doing it yourself, right? And you had never done anything like that before? No, no. But I've learned a lot and I'm excited. I've got actually several other books, mm -hmm. book ideas that I'm, that are in the wings. So, do you care to tell us about any of those? Well, one of the ones that I've been asked to do is a book that's for a younger audience, even like three to five-year-olds, just a very simplified version of Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, which is really targeted to more of a seven to 11-year-old mm -hmm. age. But because kids are getting exposed to kind of sexualized media at such a young age, that they want me to write a, a, like a junior version of this. So that's one thing. I've also gotten emails from all over the world asking me to translate it into various languages. That's another project. So <laughs> yeah. there's just no end to all the work that can be done around this cause. And I go to conferences and I speak and so it's great to have uh, a cause that you feel like this is one reason I feel like I was put on the planet to help help kids and to help parents.
Arts. I think it's a great cause. Thank it's, you. Yeah. I'm on board for it. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I need all the allies I can get. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so let's just uh, finish up with uh, one more question. Um, so what is, I guess, the, um, the best place for people to kind of get in touch with you? And uh, what, is, what is a way that people can help you in your ministry? That's a great question. Thanks. Um, they can get in touch with me by going to my website, pornproofkids.com. You can email me at pornproofkids at gmail.com. You can um, buy your book on Amazon. Yeah. We'll have the link in the description. Yeah. 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 The, the book is a great way to help kids learn about what pornography is, how it makes them feel, how it affects their brain, and how it can become an addiction. And then it presents a five-point can-do plan about how they can what they can do. It's kind of like a stop, drop, and roll plan for a fire or an earthquake or something like that. When they see pornography, here are the five things that they do immediately. And it helps them to develop cognitive skills to minimize the impact of pornography and keep them from developing an interest in it and um, an addiction to it. And if you sign up for the blog, if you subscribe, I have a wonderful poster that I will send you a PDF of a great poster that has that whole can-do plan. The can-do plan is simply, do you mind if I just mention what it is? Yeah, no, please do. Okay. I'm, I'm, in, I'm curious. So, <laughs> yeah, it's basically helping kids use their thinking brain and their feeling brain. Their feeling brain is where their interest in pornography is going to come from. It's that instinctive brain that's always interested in seeing naked people and <laughs> playing doctor and all those kinds of things that kids do. Um, but the thinking brain needs to stay in control because the thinking brain is where you learn right from wrong. Feeling brain doesn't have any idea about right from wrong. It just knows what it get wants and tries to get it. So the can-do plan really helps a child to strengthen their thinking brain. And that's where you learn self-control. That's where you learn to plan. That's where you learn to have self-discipline. So the first thing is see, close my eyes. Whenever you see pornography, just close your eyes and power down the device. A is alert, a trusted adult. So tell somebody because pornography thrives in secrecy. As soon as you tell somebody that you've seen it, it really for a child reduces the burden on them. N is name, name it. So when you see pornography, your feeling brain is already engaged. It's like, wah! But your thinking brain needs to be engaged in order to put the brakes on and say, whoa, okay, we're not going to look at that. We're not going to go there. So name it when you see it. Say, that's pornography. Even if you just quietly say it, you can teach children to quietly say it. Even if they see something at the mall or on the grocery store 
magazine rack or whatever, they can identify it and that engages their thinking brain. So then D stands for distract my thoughts away from bad images and direct my thoughts to something positive or interesting. So if a kid loves trucks or cars, if that, that image is gonna come back, that memory of that image that they've been exposed to, so they need a way to direct their thoughts. And as they practice this cognitive skill of distracting themselves to think about something different, as they practice this, they will strengthen their thinking brain and that image will fade. But it takes a little practice, it takes effort over time mm -hmm. to do that. And I've unfortunately been exposed to more pornography than I've wanted to see just because I've researched it and I use the same technique and it works. It totally works. And then the O is order my thinking brain to be in charge. So you learn more about the thinking brain and the feeling brain in the book, but ordering your thinking brain to be in charge is a way to have a conversation inside your brain. You can say, feeling brain, I know you want to look at those pictures, okay, but I'm going to choose to keep my thinking brain, to order my thinking brain to be in charge. Again, kids have an immature prefrontal cortex, immature thinking brain, and anything you can do to help them strengthen that part of their brain is going to help them stay free from pornography and any other addiction that they might have, a, that they might be exposed to or um, be tempted to, uh, to use. That part of the brain isn't fully developed until, what, age 25, mm -hmm. somewhere, yeah. 20 to 25. Mm -hmm. So every insurance company knows that, too. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's important to understand kids and where they are and how their brains are different from an adult's brain. If you took a, a person that was 25 years old that had never seen pornography, which is kind of hard to do these days, but and then expose them or they saw pornography, they wouldn't have as big of a problem saying, no, I don't want to get into that. If you take a seven-year-old and show them pornography, mm -hmm. they don't have that kind of choice. It impacts their brain. For example, have you ever seen, uh, have you ever been watching, um, or can you remember when you were a child and you were watching a movie with your parents maybe? And it freaked you out, and everyone else like, what, you know? And you had <laughs> nightmares, and it was just like a movie? Well, it's because you ha a child has an abundance of mirror neurons. And those are special neurons that help that child feel like they are experiencing what they see. And the reason a child has those mirror neurons is so that they can grow up to become an adult and imitate adult behavior. Mm -hmm. But it backfires when you're talking about pornography. When a child sees pornography, they're pulled into it more. They feel like they're experiencing it more. They don't have that ability to separate themselves from what they see like an adult does. And the immature prefrontal cortex also is, those two things create a perfect storm when, you, when it comes to pornography. So that's what the book is trying to do, is educate kids about how their brain works and and give them the cognitive skills and a plan that they can put into action whenever they're exposed because they're going to be exposed. We really can't control that, 
as much as parents want to believe that they can control their children's environment, they just can't. They go to somebody's house, they even go to a family member's house, cousin might pull them away, show them something, and the parents may have no idea what's going on. So getting in there and talking to kids early and also being open to talking to them and answering their questions about sex. Very important. Kids have questions and they have questions at a younger age now because of the world we live in. And so if they can't go to you, where are they going to go? They're going to go to their friends and the internet. And you do not want your kids going to the internet looking for information about sex because there are more lies about it than truths on the internet. And I'll just say one more thing. Pornography teaches a view of sex that's very damaging and very debilitating as far as relationships go. So if you want a good marriage, pornography has no place in that marriage because it teaches false messages about the purpose of sex which is to bond two people that love and trust one another. And pornography makes sex a solitary, uh, solitary sport. You know, it's, it's not, um, not something that is gonna help you with a relationship. In fact, it, it creates problems. People that get into it a lot sometimes have issues with knowing how to relate to other people not objectify people. So we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. So I'm glad yeah. to have you guys on board and um, I appreciate this opportunity to talk to you about this important uh, effort to not only porn-proof kids, but people. Thank yeah. you for telling us about all that good information. You're yeah. welcome. Thank well, you. My pleasure. And if you want more information, just go to pornproofkids.com. And uh, Kristen, thank you for joining us. And uh, we will see you guys next time. Thanks so much, Brandon and Stephanie.